Right. There is a lot of energy leaving the room right now. Uh, <clears throat> okay, hey, grab your Bible and turn over to Revelation 21, and we're going to do verses 1 through 14 today. And, and as you find that, I'll, uh, I'll mention we're, we're coming in Revelation 21 and 22, obviously the end of the Bible, but also it's the longest picture, it's the longest passage that speaks of heaven in the, in the entire New Testament. So this is the longest passage of, on heaven in the entire New Testament. And as we look at this, it, it should really drive kind of who we are and in, in, in our understandings of, of the plans and the purposes of God for us. So <clears throat> look over in Revelation 21, beginning in, in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So um, as we come in in the first five verses, I'm looking at this. Jesus changes everything. I mean, he has changed everything. He changes everything for all of eternity. And as we come in here and he talks about this new heaven and new earth and the first heaven and the first earth are, are gone, the sea is no more. This is a total removal of everything that is right now. And, and it's replacing it with something new, um, <clears throat> replacing it with this. So at the conclusion of everything, at the conclusion of, of this world, at the conclusion coming to the great day of the Lord when we came in and, and looked at the great judgment seat of God, at that time, um, all of the old things will pass away and Jesus is going to make everything new. In 2 Peter 3.10, Peter put it this way, he said, but the day of the Lord, and that's what we're talking about here, the great day of the Lord, the final judgment, the great day, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Um, <clears throat> so as we come into this and, and looking at it, just making everything new, it, this is a place where there's no longer any sin. There's no longer any sin. There's not even the capacity for sin. Sin can't happen. It's impossible for it to be there. There are no longer any effects of sin. There's no longer the possibility that, that it will take place. Death and hell have been cast out. Death and Hades have been cast out. We looked in the chapter before. Um, the devil has been cast out with all who followed him, and they've been cast out for all of eternity. So the heavens that we see prior in the Revelation, they, they give us a glimpse of those who have gone before us and are currently in the presence of God right now. So as we come in and, and we look at heaven right now, we think of it as the dwelling place of God, which is correct. That is what heaven is. It is the place where God dwells. And so today, as, as we think of that, that's, that's what <clears throat> is there. The people that, uh, that we know who have died before us, that's where they are. If they knew Jesus, they are in heaven. And, and they are in the presence of God, and that should bring us great comfort because heaven is the place where God dwells, 
and, and he will dwell with us. So, so this is the, the promise that we're coming in and, and seeing. Another way of putting it is when, when we think about heaven today, we think about the people that, you know, the loved ones that we've lost or so forth, and, and they have died. And, and where are they? Well, if they knew Jesus, they're in heaven. That, that is where they are. They are in the presence of of God. And so that's what, what this place is. When my dad died 30 some odd years ago, or 20, no, 27 years ago, 27 years ago when my dad died, um, he was relatively young. He's 70. And, and I think that's really young nowadays. But, um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, you know, I was young, I was 36. And, and so, um, you know, kind of coming into that, looking at it, it, it was a it was a hard time. You know, it was something that was sudden, it was fast, it was unexpected. And and what what is it that you come to and you turn to when you think of that? Well, you think of the promises of God, and, and you think of the fact. You know, that I think of the thought of the fact that well. I, I know my dad is in heaven. I know that this is where he is. He is with his brother, his sister in heaven. Because not, not because everybody goes there, but because he had a faith that was real, that it changed him. He brought me up in that faith. He brought my brothers up in that faith. My, my mom and dad had taught us those things. And so it was a comfort. It was something to come and, and to look at. So heaven is the place where God dwells. And, and so as we look at that now, we're, we're looking at something different um, when we're coming into Revelation. What is it going to be? What is this new heaven and new earth going to be? Osborne, in, in, uh, in his commentary, on Revelation, he, he puts it, I think he puts it really well as he sums up this section. He says, in Jesus' teaching, heaven is the place where the faithful will be rewarded. Matthew 5, 12, 6, 20, 13, 43. They'll have their home, John 14, 2 and 3. There will be eternal life there, Mark 10, 30, John 3, 16. Paul, um, in Paul, heaven is the place where our lowly bodies are transformed to be like his glorious body, Philippians 3, 20 to 21, um, 1 Corinthians 15, and, and in which we have an eternal house not built by human hands, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. And then in Hebrews, heaven is the place in which Jesus is at the right hand of God and exalted to the place where the greater and more perfect tabernacle in the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, a better country, a heavenly one, awaits God's people. Thus it is the kingdom that cannot be shaken, that is better and lasting possessions. In Second Peter, the old heavens and the old earth must perish in fire in uh, chapter 3, 7, and 10, so that the new heaven and new earth can provide the home of righteousness. Thus, in Revelation, heaven and earth are united in one eternal order, and the dichotomy between the two in this sinful age is broken. When the old heaven and earth are destroyed, the new heaven and new earth become one. So that's what we're looking at in, in this passage overall through verse 1 through 15, is that the old heaven and the old earth are going to pass away and be replaced by a new one. <clears throat> and as we come in and everything that we've looked at here, we've had several throne scenes as we've come in here. And, and in this final scene, as we look into the majesty and the holiness of God, that's what's being revealed to us in this book. It's his sovereign power over all things that assures us 
that the lamb has changed everything. Everything has been changed. Everything will be different. Heaven is something that is going to be totally different. When we talk about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, it's totally different from what we're thinking of today and and what is currently going on because this is something that at the end that is going to be made new, totally new. And then we go on in verses 6 through eight, and we see that um, not only does Jesus make all things new, but faith guarantees us the victory. In verses six through eight, it says, and he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his, this heritage, but I will be his God and he will be my son. <clears throat> but as for the cowardly, the faithful, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. <clears throat> so as we, we come in here, <coughs> we, we see these two groups of people. We see the thirsty and we see the cowardly. Um, the thirsty are those who desire God. They're drawing near him. Um, they're seeking his presence. They are hungering and thirsting for God, or as, as Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They will be satisfied. They will receive what they are seeking. In James 4, 8, James put, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Or John seven thirty seven, Jesus said, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So, <clears throat> These are the people who are thirsting after God. They are longing for God. They desire God. They have this urge to be with him. That is what, um, as we come through the Bible, and that's what Jesus does in us. When we come to know him, he puts this desire in us to be more like him, to draw close to him, to understand him more, to learn more about him, to please him, and, and so forth. This is a fundamental change that takes place within us, and, and it's a faith that guarantees victory. It's a faith that promises and assures us that we will end in the, the fashion that we have started, that, that he will do this. The cowardly, on the other hand, they, they're those who have an empty faith. The cowardly or the faithless is, is the word used after that. He says, um, as for the cowardly, the faithless. In other words, their, their faith is not real. Um, it, it ultimately fails to bring life change. They're, what they say and what they live is, is, a, is a different thing. They have a faith that is empty um, and, and it's faithless. So it, it means basically when, when you translate this word cowardly out and following it by faithless, it means that they don't overcome. They're not the ones who overcome. And it goes back to the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. Um, the, the tagline at the end of all of those, it says, to him who overcomes. And then he has a promise, to him who overcomes, the overcomers. So what is that? What, what, is, what he's leading to here is saying that true faith changes us. True faith in Christ fundamentally changes who we are, and it leads to victory. Um, in 1 John 5, 1 through 5, John put it this way. He said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so for John, he's saying, look, when you enter into this journey with Jesus, he changes you. He changes your desires. He changes your heart. He changes the way that you view the world, and he changes the way that you love other people. And you want to follow God. You want to do the things in the Bible. You want to be faithful to him. You have this urge that comes from within because this is a faith that changes us, and faith is what takes us over the finish line. Real faith changes us. Real faith, a real faith, a real trust in Christ not only changes us, it enables us to live lives pleasing to God. We can't do that on our own. I can't live a life pleasing to God on my own. It is something that he enables me to do through faith. In Hebrews eleven six. Um, it says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is, this is what faith does in us. It changes us. It, it, it moves us to this place that we're looking and saying, you know what? I do believe in Jesus and I believe that he has a reward for me and I believe in heaven and I believe that it's real and I believe that I have a hope in a future and I believe that the promises of God are true and real and that what he has promised to me will come about and that he will enable me to do that and and that we have eternal rewards in store for us and and that's what we're looking at here when we come in. Um, So this is the promise of God and this is what he is offering to us. And he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor vilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think verse 11 there is so key for us to understand that he says, and such were some of you. He, he lists off this list of sins, and, and you know, the easy thing to do is, well, I've never murdered anybody, or I haven't, you know, this is not, I'm not a swindler or a idolater, or blah, blah, blah. Listen to this and look at it, and, and what, <clears throat> what, uh, Paul said was, he goes, look, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God, because faith changes us. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is something that God enables us to do and to have. It's something that is a gift that comes by him. Um, or as Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. <clears throat> so as, as we come in and we begin to look at this, we, we realize that, you know what? We all have a past. Everybody in the room has a past. No perfect people in the room. There are no perfect people in the room. Everybody has stuff in their background that you would rather not dig up. 
We all do. We all have sin in the past, and we all, if, if we could come back and have a do-over of things, there are things that we would do differently, and, and we look at it, and this is what Paul wrote here. He says, look, such were some of you. Such were some of you. You're not that anymore. That's what you were. But Jesus has changed you. You were washed. You were sanctified. To be washed means you were made clean. You were set apart. You were justified. You were declared right before God through Jesus Christ in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And in other words, God changes us. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of this book is that we can turn to Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who has given his life for us so that we can be made whole again, so that we can be made right with God. It's not what we do. It's not our works. Faith changes us. When we come to Christ in faith, it changes us. It fundamentally changes who I am, and it moves my focus from this world to another one. So as we come in, you know, I haven't met any perfect people. I've met some people who think they're perfect, but they're not. But I really, I've not met any perfect people. My grandson comes really close, though. I mean, I'm a, you know, he's not quite one. He'll be one in a couple weeks. But, but I know that somewhere below the surface, sin is lurking. But, um, but you know, I, I see it every now and then in, in that little devious stuff that he'll do, even as a little kid. But, but, you know, the truth of the matter is there are no perfect people, right? But faith changes us. It fundamentally changes who we are. And, and this is what, as we come in here and as we see it, what he's saying is, said, look, it's finished. It's done. I'm making all things new. Write it down. It's trustworthy and true. And to the thirsty, to those who have faith and, and they have had their appetite wet so that they can hunger and thirst for me, I am going to do something amazing. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Or as Isaiah writes, come, all of you who are thirsty and drink, come, get milk and bread and wine without cost. Why do you spend what you have on what will not satisfy when I'm offering you something better? This is the, this is the thing that God offers to us and, and leads and, and runs out towards us. So we see that... <clears throat> Jesus changes everything, that faith is our victory, and then finally in verses 9 through 14, that we are the temple of God. So as we come on down here, he says, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So he describes this, this great... <clears throat> heavenly city, and he goes out, and we'll, we'll talk more about the stones and all this stuff next week, but, but coming in here, the angel shows John the bride, and then he describes this holy city coming down from heaven as the temple of God, and this temple is clothed in the glory of 
God. It comes down, it has the glory of God around it. This is uh, a city that God has prepared. In verse two, as we go back, it's the city that he's prepared. Now it's seen clearly as God dwelling with his people. So today, as, as we come in here as believers, we're the temple of God um, here for others to encounter and see his presence. What we see is, is that, that our bodies right now, that the spirit of God dwells in us and that we are a reflection of Christ to the world around us, that we're to live our lives in such a way that people see the presence and, and the, the person of Christ in us, that we live that out, that we emulate him through um, our good works, through the things that we do. Um, And we are being made to be more and more like him. So that's, that's what's happening in our lives today. As we come in, as we enter into a faith relationship with Christ, we become more and more like him. We desire him more and more, and we experience him more, and we long to see him more fully. It moves us into this place where I don't read my Bible because I'm supposed to read my Bible. I read my Bible on a daily basis because I'm drawn to it. I'm drawn to Christ in the word. I'm drawn to the God of the, of the word. I am drawn to, to be caught up in his story, to be caught up in who he is, to be caught up in what he is doing in me and around me, and and I'm longing to see him more fully because this is where I get this glimpse of him. I get this glimpse of the greatness and the holiness of God in his word. As a matter of fact, when, when I come in and I look at this book of Revelation, the thing that's probably overwhelmed me about it this week is that it's the majesty of God. It is the majesty of God, the glory of God, the greatness of who he is shown out there for the whole world, and then in that is the absolute brokenness of man, the absolute brokenness of us in this God who loves us, who has come as, as the, the, the lamb who was slain to redeem us in, in love and sacrifice and suffering so that we could be restored and redeemed and made whole and may, be made right with him. So we are longing to see him fully as, as this happens in here. And, and we come in and we see that we are, God is dwelling in us and he is doing something in us. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, it says, do you not know that God, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. And he goes on in verse 20, he says, therefore glorify God in your body. Um, in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Paul put it this way, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have this taste of being the temple of God, dwelling here in us and among us and doing things with us. In 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So as, as we come in and as we look at this, when the new Jerusalem when the new heaven and the new earth, when, when it comes down, heaven and earth, they become one. It's no longer the split thing that we're living here now, that we have earth and we have heaven. God is dwelling in heaven right now. That is where he is. We don't see him face to face. We get a glimpse of him through his word. We get pieces of his glory as it's revealed to us. But right now, it's as Paul said, we see as though through a dark glass, uh, through glass darkly. You know, it's like looking at this cloudy mirror. We, we kind of see God and, and we have an understanding, but we don't fully know God. We don't fully understand God. And <clears throat> throughout the scriptures, heaven is the dwelling place of God from Genesis chapter three all the way to Revelation chapter 20. Heaven is seen as the dwelling place of God. But in chapter 21 and 22, it flips and it changes. And this is the restoration of the very presence of God among us. <clears throat> it's not a reflection of the glory of God. Like, you know, the story of Moses. Moses said, God, just show me your glory. And God says, Moses, I can't do that. And he said, you couldn't handle it. He says, I'll tell you what, though, go over and, and hi, get in the cleft in the rock, and I'm going to put my hand in front of your face, and I'm going to pass by, and, and Moses, uh, God passes by as Moses can't look, and then God removes his hand, and, and, and Moses just kind of picks in the, the, just the afterglory of God, you know, kind of just what's lingering there and in the back of God, and, and in that, then Moses, all of a sudden, from this point on, he's, he's this guy that's got to cover his face up when he's around people because he glows. And, and it's just this amazing thing that took place. But, but <clears throat> this is not, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about full-on face-to-face with God. We're talking about heaven coming down and intersecting with earth and that earth being totally destroyed and, and rebuilt up from there. This is God's promise, and, and this is the grace of God being revealed. He's not going to let sin go on forever. He's not going to let this world go on like it's going forever. And I don't know about you, but I think that's a good thing. Because there's a lot of things in our world today that are painful, They're, they are very dark, and, and they lead us to a place of hopelessness. And what God says is, is that when the new heaven and the new earth arrive, that will not be. That will not even be possible. God says he will not let sin go on forever. This is the grace of God being fully revealed as we come in Revelation 21 and 22. It is the restoration of Genesis chapter one and two. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, in the very beginning of the Bible, it says that God walked with the man and the woman in the cool of the day. They walked together. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't, it is absolutely amazing. They fully knew God. I mean, it's like you wake up in the morning and, and something pops into your brain. You go, you know, I wonder about that. You go, I'll just ask God. 
I mean, we pray and, and we wait for an answer. They didn't wait for any answer. I mean, it's just bing, right there. Because they are face-to-face with God. Everything that there is to know about God, they can know, they can see, they can understand. They are fully known and they fully know and understand him. And this is, this is the change. This is in, in Genesis chapter three, they sin. And, and God in his grace, he does a couple of things. First of all, in their shame and their brokenness, he covers them. He gives them clothing to cover their shame. So they are naked and ashamed, and he covers them, so he covers up their shame. And then the next thing that he does, this is the most important thing. The most important thing is that he blocked the entrance to the garden so they could not eat of the tree of life and live in their broken state forever. And now we see the Bible beginning to unfold. We go through all of the history of the Bible. We get to the end of the history of the world. And at it, what happens is, is God says, I am restoring things. I am making all things new. When, when you think, you know what, there's nothing new under the sun? Oh, yeah, there's something new under the sun. It's coming. It's coming. Jesus makes all things new. That's the hope. That's the promise of the gospel. He's not going to let sin go on forever. This is the promise of God. This is the grace of God revealed to us. And he has atoned for sin, and he will ultimately cast out all who are bound by sin, only leaving the redeemed with no possibility of sins. Heaven, we talk about heaven being a perfect place. It is a perfect place. It's a place where there's no sin. And in and, and the new heaven and new earth, there will be no possibility of sin. There will be no temptation. There will be no evil. There'll be no brokenness. There'll be no tears. You know, you read, you know, we'll read all of that. He wipes away every tear from their eyes. Death is, shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Before the former things have passed away, there won't be any more colds. Um, you know, everything's going to be good. Um, you won't be wake up in the middle of the night because your head's about to explode. Instead, you'll just sleep like, just, just like, like a baby, you know, great. So it, this is this promise and, and this thing that God is offering. So as we come down and we look at it, this should drive us. This should move us. It, it should, it should be something that's on the forefront of our minds as, as we look to it and we understand that this world is not what we're made for. We're not made for this. We're made to know God. We're made to be face-to-face with God. And, and what we're in right now is broken. It's just broken. And God wants us to be changed. And, and that's what takes place in our lives. When we come to faith, we move through this process of being made more and more and more like him on a daily basis. And you do that as you study the Bible, as you pray, as you meet with other people and talk about the things of God and, and challenge one another and, and, and draw one another closer to the scriptures and the things that God wants to do in our lives. And, and then as we move more and more and more, he moves us to this point to where we get to where we're longing for heaven. We're longing. We're longing to be face-to-face with God. Not that we're longing to check out. It's just that we know there's something better. There's something better in store for us. So <clears throat> I've had some people ask me, um, you know, hey, you should do a series on heaven and, and just full information. They're all over 80 who have said that. But, uh, but here's the deal. Eight-year-olds should be locked into heaven. I mean, we should be locked into the 
final destiny that God has in store for us, the, the hope that he has for us, the promise that he's made to us. And this is what we begin to see unfold in chapters 21 and, and 22, is that God is restoring his creation back to what it's supposed to be. Sin has dealt a heavy, heavy blow, heavy blow. And it has destroyed lives, it's destroyed people, it's destroyed countries, it's, it's just a big destroyer of many, many things. But God says, you know what, I, I won't let that go on forever. I won't. I have offered redemption and restoration, and I offer you a new hope and a new future and a new heaven and a new earth, and that's the promise that he has for us. So as we come in and we look at that, you know, what's this new heaven and new earth going to look like? Look, here's the great thing about it. We're not going to be fat little angels plucking harps sitting on a cloud. We're going to be people with real bodies. We're going to be restored. We'll have a resurrection body, and and we'll have a, a, a a great place, a, a purpose. We'll have a purpose. We'll do things. We'll have a purpose. We'll, we'll have a, a great place to be, a place where there's no, <clears throat> no brokenness, there's no sin, and there is a future for us that's beyond imagination. That's the hope of the gospel, that God has restored us, and, and he has um, a plan and a purpose not just for us, but for other people in our community, for other people in our world. And so as we come in and we look at it, <clears throat> I want to challenge you today. First of all, do you think of your life in the terms of heaven? Do you think of it in terms of God has an eternity for me and what's it going to look like and how am I preparing myself for that? How am I getting myself ready for what God wants to do in my life for all of eternity, not just in these few brief years that we live here on this planet, but in the future when he brings down the new heaven and the new earth and, and he restores us to what he created us to be and he offers us this <clears throat> amazing future. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we praise you and we thank you for the blessings that you've given to us, for the love that you have for us. Father, for the hope that we have in Jesus. Father, that, uh, that everything that we know, all of its brokenness, sin, hurt, pain, grief, that one day it will be replaced with something that is beyond our imagination. A place where there's no weeping, there's no mourning, there's no evil, but we're face-to-face -face in your presence. And Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts each day as we get closer and closer to that, and that you'd work in us and change us to be more and more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.